Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, as we rethink, may your wisdom guide us to opening up space, to returning to the heart, and to coming home to you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, last week, Mike started us on a new sermon series in which we are exploring what it means that Pearl is an expression of evolving Christianity. Evolving Christianity. I love how provocative that sentence is. Mike and I were trying to think of words to use to describe Pearl, and we kept thinking, oh, not quite right, not quite right. And then Mike said, what about evolving? And I was like, that's it. It's so edgy. Evolving Christianity, two words you wouldn't usually expect to be in the same sentence. Evolution is this process by which living organisms develop. And that process extends to the development of human consciousness and human systems. Everything, it is all necessarily ever-changing, ever-expanding, rolling outward. Unfortunately, rather than embrace change, the church has often failed to recognize its own history of evolution and remains skeptical about its need for evolution today. And yet, to use Jesus' late-night conversation with Nicodemus, one of the beautiful aspects of a spiritual life is that we are being born again and again and again. As Mike reminded us last week, you never know which way the wind is going to blow. But here's the thing. The evolution of Christianity and the evolution of our personal faith, our personal spirituality, always seems to start with a breakdown, doesn't it? I mean, like, like we have this whole system, and it's all working for us, this whole way of being in the world, and it just stops working. and stops working for us. Over the past decades, more and more Christians have started borrowing a word from postmodern philosophy to describe this, the word deconstruction, deconstruction. I mean, that seems like such an apt word, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't it sound like our faith, our whole system of Christian belief is like, picture a Jenga tower. You know, if you go to a bar, they have those giant Jenga blocks, and they're bigger than you, and it's this whole Jenga tower. And, it, you know, it's, it's massive, and it all seems like it's all fitting together well. And then you pull out one idea that doesn't really make sense anymore. And then you pull out another thing that you just, I don't know if I can believe that any longer. And that, this seems harmful. And you just start pulling blocks out, and pretty soon the whole thing is just wobbling. And you're watching it go back and forth and wondering, gosh, if I pull out one more piece, is this whole thing going to come down on me? And then sooner or later, no matter how careful you try to be, the whole thing just comes down. And now what do we do? 
Another image for deconstruction came to me a few weeks ago when I was sitting in spiritual direction. I was trying to describe to my director how difficult it can be to know how to relate to God in this kind of new progressive faith that we're all in, how hard it can be sometimes for me. Imagine that you're on a riverbank, and there's this wide river, and God is on the other side of the river right? But it's okay. It's okay. You've got a rope bridge. There's a bridge across the river. It's made of ropes. It's sturdy enough. You can get over to God. You know, you got the connection. Great. But then you realize that, gosh, one of the ropes on this bridge is shame. That's why I'm connected to God. It's, it's shame. And so you say, oh, that's got to go. And you cut that one. And then, oh, well, another one's fear. So that has that, that can't be good for connecting to God. So you've got to cut that one, and then you've got perfectionism, and then you've got the fear of hell, and so on and so forth. And you, because of your faith, you start just cutting and cutting, and pretty soon you realize you've just cut the whole bridge down. And there God is on the other side of the river, and here you are, and you think, oh, well, now what do I do? Deconstruction. In these images, it can feel just like what happens to us is everything just breaks down and gets left in pieces on the floor. And we don't really know how to proceed. And it's true that when the wind blows as it will, sometimes the blocks come down. But today, I want to suggest some other pictures for deconstruction, some other metaphors that I think might help us inhabit this space of change in our faith differently in a more positive sense. Burning it all down, knocking it all down, cutting it all down, right? That's a strong image, and it leaves us feeling like we just broke our faith. But I think there's some other images that can suggest ways forward for us. So to start, maybe you're not just cutting things down. Maybe you're clearing space. Maybe you're clearing space. Imagine a grove all tangled with briars and blackberry thorns. We know those in the Pacific Northwest, don't we? Imagine that grove just choked out with all these weeds. And so you put on your thick gloves and you lather on sunscreen and you put on your dad hat. This is me. Anytime I do yard work, sunscreen, dad hat. Uh, And you grab your, your hedge trimmers and your spades and you get to work. And yeah, there's cutting involved, sure, but, but that cutting is to make room for new things to grow, for beautiful things to grow. I think this metaphor of clearing space is in many ways actually truer to the heart of deconstruction than we at first might realize. This term, deconstruction, comes out of the word, it's work of Jacques Derrida a French philosopher known for his contributions to postmodern thought. He's also known for being very difficult to read. Uh, My philosophy professor called him the French fog machine. Uh, uh, For Derrida, deconstruction was a technique of questioning supposed certainties by remembering that everything that we know as humans is interpretation. Everything that we know, we don't see just plain facts when we look at our world. We're always seeing the world from a perspective. Our vision is limited. There's always the possibility, always the possibility we're mistaken. And many of the ways that we've been taught to interpret the world are not neutral. They're not objective. They actually have a bias toward power. 
There's a bias in the systems and the laws and the rules and the cultures that we inhabit that to us appear just objective, just the way things are, but they have this built-in bias toward protecting those who are in power and marginalizing voices of dissent or protest. James K.A. Smith, who I find to be a really helpful guide to these things, explains, deconstruction's recognition that everything is interpretation opens a space for questioning, a space to call into question received and dominant interpretations that often claim not to be interpretations at all. As such, deconstruction is interested in interpretations that have been marginalized and sidelined. So what this looks like is we, we take a step back from what we've been told is true, and we ask, well, who is this idea helping, and who is it harming? Who does this idea keep in power, and who does it potentially oppress? And that question is an act of clearing space, clearing space to listen to voices that otherwise would just be discounted or ignored. For example, we take a step back from patriarchal teachings, just, this is just how the world is, male, female, bloop, bloop, that's how it is, and then we ask to listen to the voices of women and see how that changes our perspective. Or we take a step back from a default loyalty to our country that we all grew up with, and we listen to experiences of systemic racism, and when we recalibrate. This process of deconstruction can seem threatening because there is a sense in which we are tearing down certainties. But where did the idea that we could be certain come from, right? I mean, the assumption that we as humans can have a God's eye view where we just know beyond a doubt that what we think and what we believe is just the way it is, well, that sneaks in, I think, from modernism, uh, not from the Bible. There are much more ancient wisdom traditions in Judaism and Christianity that have always cautioned us to a deep humility in our interpretations of the world. For example, in this morning, uh, morning's Hebrew scripture passage from Isaiah, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Meaning, far from trusting our human certainty, the Bible is counseling us to hold our ideas and our systems loosely because they're not divine. And if we as humans have a tendency to build up systems that choke out the voices of the marginalized, then deconstruction is a way to clear space to hear them again. Perhaps in whatever process of deconstruction you have gone through or are now going through, maybe you're not just burning it all down. Maybe you are clearing space where you can listen to voices that otherwise just could not be heard in your life. And maybe, here's another image, maybe you're not just burning everything down. Maybe you are turning back to the heart. Maybe you're turning back to the heart. While deconstruction is a newer, kind of almost faddish world today, uh, word today, the activity it names is very ancient and traveled hand-in-hand hand with religion all along. 
Uh, just as Socrates was a gadfly to Athens, annoying everybody with his constant questions, the prophetic tradition has been an absolutely necessary and sometimes irritating partner of Orthodox faith all along. Now, to be clear, prophetic here doesn't mean anything about telling the future, foretelling. In the Jewish and Christian traditions, the prophet is not one who tells what will happen, but rather one who draws back the curtain on what is happening, the social, the economic, and the religious realities that no one wants to face. As Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann explains in his work, The Prophetic Imagination, as soon as you have a governmental establishment, a king, or a religious institution, the priest, out of the woodwork will come the prophet, whose role is to call people to turn back to the heart of God's desire for justice and flourishing. I mean, it's just kind of fascinating that our religious text, the Bible, includes a huge amount of material of both the Jewish and Christian peoples criticizing themselves, right? That's an interesting thing for a religious book to contain, just lots of self-critique, because the prophets are naming the ways our own tradition has caused harm, pulling down the structures of systems that no longer serve their purpose, it's like deconstruction is built right into the fabric of our religious tradition all along. Now, why is it that prophets always show up wherever there's establishment or institution? Because our human communities have this, this gravitational pull from turning movements into machines. Movements into machines. A movement. Some individual or group is inspired by an experience. There's a breakthrough, a vision. They are transformed in the way that, that they are, in the way of being. And you can feel the palpable energy of their lives and the ways that they change structures and invite people into this new way of being, which is about the heart internal. And people are moved, and so they want to they hold this up. They want to teach it. They want to pass it on to others, to generations to come. So what do you do? Well, you, you start codifying it. You start trying to name what are the external behaviors and the outcomes of this transformed way of being, and you, you put those in words, and you try to erect barriers to keep people right on the, on the path, right? But we start becoming focused more on the doing than the being. And so now we have not a movement, but a monument. And over time, more and more focus shifts to that doing, to, to keeping up the monument. And so we've we got to keep the, the writings and the institutions and the structures going, and they take on a life of their own. And so much energy goes to preserving the outward forms that the heart just slips away entirely. And so now we have a machine. And ironically, that machine ends up chewing up lives and crushing people in just the way the original movement tried to prevent. Movement, monument, machine. This happens all the, it just happens all the time, almost with any movement, just like a gravitational pull. And the prophet, the prophet is the one who tells the machine to remember and return to the heart of the movement. The prophet par excellence under this understanding is Jesus. I mean, we see Jesus in today's gospel passage pressing right on this point 
Uh, He sits at dinner in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. And the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he's eating with sinners and tax collectors and say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See, this, this tradition, this tradition that Jesus is stepping into, which had always had at its heart a vision of a God who draws near, who draws near to humanity with concern and love and mercy and willing our good, well, it had solidified into a machine of purity, a machine that chewed up and rejected those who most needed the inclusion of love. And so Jesus, as a prophetic witness, calls for the tearing down, the tearing down of the systems that are keeping people away from the heart of God. So perhaps if you today or in the past have found yourself deconstructing, well, you're in good company. Maybe you're not burning everything down, but what you're doing is seeking to return to the heart, to the heart of why Christianity exists at all. Finally, maybe you're not cutting everything down. Maybe you're coming home. Maybe you're coming home. Coming home, but more deeply. Coming to inhabit home in a way that you never have before. This is a movement that often happens to us as we start moving toward the second half of our life. Uh, Richard Rohr speaks about this in his book, Falling Upward. Uh, The task of the first half of life, he writes, is to create this container for life and to answer these first essential questions. What makes me significant? How can I support myself? Who will go with me, right? Who am I? Where am I? What's my purpose? That's kind of first half of life stuff. But the second half of life... You start then, you've got this container, and you start wanting to actually fill it with substance, with meaning, with beauty. In the first half of life, we receive home gladly. Our traditions, our culture, our beliefs are handed to us by our community. They give us belonging. They give us identity. They give us a place to form and to grow. But at some point, we look around the home we've been given, metaphorically speaking, and we ask, Is this my home? Is this what I believe? Is this an expression of my heart? Is this what I bring to the world? And we begin to sense that even if the traditions and beliefs we have are true, we don't know them for ourselves yet. And so we have to go on a journey. And to journey is to leave home. Now, the shape of this journey that we kind of all get pulled onto has been traced out in innumerable myths and tales and stories and movies. Joseph Campbell calls it the hero's journey. And it's in every tale you watch, uh, from the Odyssey to Finding Nemo, uh, the Wizard of Oz and Lord of the Rings and Jack on the Beanstalk, the hero leaves home on a quest On the way, they're tested and they're deepened. They come to know themselves and their world with new eyes, and they grow more capacity, capacity for holding tension, for holding grief, but also joy, for holding sorrow, but also hope. And they return home, but they're changed, and they inhabit home in a new way. In the words of T.S. Eliot, they know the place for the first time. What does that have to do with deconstruction? Well, simply, 
For many of us, Christianity is our home. But as we get older, we find that we don't, we don't know if it's ours. We look around at the theology and the teachings and the practices and the community, and we feel unsettled. And, and for many of us, deconstruction is like the hero's journey. We have to go on a quest in order to find ourselves, in order to be able to come home. So take, for example, this is a journey that I went on uh, around the idea of Trinity, right? So you've got this doctrine of Trinity. And I, you know, I started out being taught God is three, a hierarchy. You know, there's Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and they're kind of, you know, big little littlest or something like that. And sure, great, that all makes, I mean, it doesn't make sense, but great, I'll take it. Uh, but wait, does that mean anything to me? At a certain point, you start asking, what does that mean? For my life. Do I believe that? And, and also, the hierarchy of it, you know, that starts to be problematic, and you start to think, oh, gosh, I mean, that hierarchy seems to be the cause of a lot of harm in our history, and the patriarchy of it seems to be really problematic, and so you start to feel estranged from the idea of Trinity, maybe even put off by it. So you kind of have to go on a journey, but then in holding those questions, you start to discover alternative ideas of the Trinity, like the idea of mutual self-giving. Or you see the picture of Rublev's Trinity icon where the, the overarching gesture of the image is a circle. And it's a circle that's open to involve you, humanity, to be drawn into this circle of belonging. And that, that starts to make some movements. And the idea starts to grow. Maybe this idea of Trinity is actually beautiful. I mean, maybe the most real thing, the foundation of all existence is community. It's a community of self-giving love, and it's all relationship. And so, having gone on a journey, you come home. You come home to Trinity, but in a new way, in this way that's deeper and has far more meaning for the way you are in the world than you ever knew before. See, this is what I'm talking about. It's this, this, this going out away from, and you come home, but it's, it's different, and it's deeper, and it's beautiful. So if you find yourself holding pieces of what used to be coherent, comfortable, theological home, and now it's all in pieces, well, maybe you're not burning it all down. Maybe you're on a journey to come home. Opening space, turning back to the heart, coming home. In suggesting these metaphors, I don't mean to undercut the reality of how scary the deconstruction process can be. Leaving home is frightening. You wonder, am I ever going to come back? I think here of Sam Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, right? There's that scene, if I take one more step, I'll be further out of the Shire than I've ever been, right? <laughs> Will I get lost? Will I be misled? Am I mistaken? Where are the markers that tell me the way to go? And sometimes it really does feel like your tower of certainty has been blown over by the winds and you'll just never be able to put it back together. And sometimes it feels like you've cut down the bridge that allowed you to find your way back to God and you don't know if you'll get it back. But maybe you're clearing space so your picture of life and of God and the world can be shaped by voices that are too often dismissed. Maybe you're turning back because you're seeking out the heart of God, the movement behind the machine. And maybe you're actually coming home. 
even if the way involves a journey outward so that you can come home with more depth and belonging than you've ever known possible. If this is evolving Christianity, then this is good. It means not breaking apart into chaos and meaninglessness, but a revisioning and an acceptance that as humans, we always have more to learn. And you're in good company. Maybe the word deconstruction is new, but it's actually this old, old way that so many of us have walked before. The ancient monastic traditions called this path conversio. Not conversion in the sense of a one-off conversion experience, but no, conversio was the ongoing, never-ending openness to change, to be malleable in God's hands, to turn and to turn and to turn again, but always toward love. May our experiences of deconstruction always open more space. May they always turn us back to God's heart. And may they always lead us further home into love. Will you pray with me? God, in all of our journeys, we ask you will open up space so that we can hear marginalized voices. We pray that you will turn our hearts back to your heart. And we pray that you will guide us home. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.